Hey everyone, welcome back to the It's a Mind Game podcast. My name is Jade and I'm so excited to have the fabulous Holly Dunn back with us, who, gosh, was episode 44, which feels like so, so long ago. Um, If you haven't listened to that episode, I highly recommend you go back and have a listen because it is quite an epic conversation. Um, But if you are new and you haven't met Holly before, she is a registered nutritionist and clinical nutritional therapy practitioner who specializes in HA. Welcome. Oh, thanks, Jade. It's so, so lovely to be back. And we were just chatting before we hit record and you told me it was episode um, 70, 71, 73. We're around there by now. Yes. Can't believe, I can't believe it. So it's, um, it's absolutely fantastic to see sort of um, the progress in the podcast and um yeah so thank you very much for having me back it's great to be here oh, I've been hanging out because I know with our time zones it's a little bit trickier to organize our podcast episodes but nonetheless I'm glad we finally got something that could suit us both and now we're here now yeah. we obviously had some contact beforehand and you have written a fantastic blog about whether women should calorie count or not calorie count during their HA journey And, you know, it was such a great idea to bring this to the front line because for the most part, it's the most confusing part of HA because you've got the addiction side of things where maybe you can't give up calorie counting and it's kind of feeding that. It's like, oh, but I have to make sure I'm getting X amount of calories. Otherwise, I'm not going to recover my period. And then there's all this focus on it. But then you've got the other side of, oh, maybe I can't recover if I'm not counting because I don't know if I'm hitting my targets. And then it just, it's such a topsy-turvy sort of predicament. Um, I guess if we could talk back to our personal experiences before we lead in. So for me, I did calorie count early on in my weight loss journey. And then I stopped when I started intermittent fasting because that was some sort of mental loophole of, I know I'm still restricting fairly easily because I'm intermittent fasting. And then that faded. And when I learned of HA recovery, I learned the calorie targets and I had a serious think with myself and thought, you know what, I'm, I'm too sensitive to that app. I just obsess over numbers. I'm just going to load up my foods with peanut butter and oils and salmon and avocados. And I'm going to eat the cake if it's a birthday and I'm just going to eat till I feel full. And what calories I was getting, I've got no idea. Was I eating more? Absolutely. Um, what did you do with your HA recovery? Did you calorie count or did you just start eating more? So it's really interesting because I think when I was recovering, I actually wasn't aware of this number, right? This um, so this sort of standard that we now have around HA recovery, which um, I'm sure we'll talk about, is obviously very useful for lots of reasons. Um, but uh, like you earlier on in my sort of orthorexia and my sort of my HA journey, um, I, I, there was an element of calorie counting for a while. Um, and so for me, my journey out of HA was very much, as you say, there was none of that. I, there was absolutely no calorie counting at all for me. Um, it was very much about, okay, what foods am I missing? What do I feel like? And I think the hunger element and hunger and fullness element is important, but that satisfaction element became really big for me. Like I want to eat these lovely rich foods. And like you say, you know, if I feel like a piece of cake, that's part of a healthy balanced diet. And I think it was just very much more about, um, um, it was almost like an intuitive, intuitive eating (laughs) because I didn't formally try an intuitive eating protocol or plan um and not that that's a diet but I did find my way there um sort of on my own really which sounds like you did as well Jade I think in terms of sounds like you know your whole approach to it sounds really balanced and intuitive and and you know trying to come back to that playfulness around food that curiosity um that was the journey really and for me personally I could not do that if I was reducing food to arithmetic and mm. using using calories, which I'll, I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, because obviously there's a lot of benefits 
and but potentially some pitfalls as well I love how you described it as like playfulness and curiosity though because there's so much fear and I guess negative energy around food when you need to eat more of it given we've thought for so long to eat less or even from the orthorexia side of things you're not always necessarily trying to eat less you're just eating high nutrient dense foods which so happens Mm -hmm. to be low calorie so there's so many avenues to it but I guess if you can look at introducing new foods and increasing your calories as a bit of an adventure, it does take that scary edge off it. Cause rather than being like, I have to eat something high fat, it's so much more calories. It's more like, Oh, what does peanut butter taste with da- taste like with dates? That sounds fun. Let's try that. Even if I have a bite, that's okay. Let's just, do I like the flavor? Do I like the texture? How does my gut feel when I eat it? Like there's so many questions we can ask ourselves about what we're enjoying about the food as we eat it as well as how we feel after it and I guess sometimes calorie counting can sort of prevent that because as you said it you're just looking at it as a calculation not a an experience it's purely numbers Um, and I think sometimes it also takes away from the idea of being creative and adventurous with foods because rather than just throwing in ingredients and mixing it up it's like oh I've got to weigh it I've got to measure things like it's not as you said fun playful and curiosity filled it's still very you know you're articulating everything Um, when you wrote that article there was sort of the heading about the downside to calorie countings and one of the key headings you had was human bodies are not laboratories (laughs) which I love because it's true we like to think that no you know we just do the numbers and we do the math and so does our digestive system and our energy systems and we're so much more complicated could you dive a little bit more into that statement with us yeah, of course. Um, of course I will with pleasure. And before I do, actually, I did just want to say that I should have probably said this at the beginning, but I think we I think both of us wanted to place a little bit of a disclaimer on the topic. I do think that there's we, we may potentially touch on some triggering content here for people. So certainly as I talk a little bit about the science of the calorie and different types of energy um sort of um profiles of foods as well i really don't want to trigger anyone um so if you're likely to get triggered um, i just want to say that because um i think we just want to be sort of a little bit responsible about what we're talking about here but yeah so human bodies um are not laboratories and i think that the idea that a calorie is a calorie is a calorie is so pervasive that we we often forget about the sources of the calories, the context in which they're found in foods and how they're used in the body. And that calorie is a calorie or all calories are equal. That's, it's very, very strong in um, the fitness world. And I'm sure from your background, you'll know (laughs) that really well as well. Um, And it is true to a certain extent that calories are equal outside of the body. Um, because a calorie essentially is is a unit of energy and when we measure um, calories in foods um, using something called a um, a caloric um, a bomb calorimeter you're essentially burning burning that desiccated food to see how much it changes the um, temperature of water so when we do that in a laboratory setting that's essentially how calories in foods are calculated to see how much heat they produce and so how much you know energy they're going to provide us um, in the body but um, I guess the problem is is that that process you know doesn't take into account um, how foods are digested the food structure um, how they're broken down in the body and then how after they've been broken down and digested and absorbed into the blood how they're then metabolized in our cells to produce energy and and different nutrients contain have these different structures that basically require different biochemical pathways and processes for extracting their energy and when what's left when the when the calories gone through or the food's gone through that whole process what's actually left and available for us to use as energy is different depending on what nutrient we've we've eaten so i hope that sort of 
that makes sense. I'm going to try and explain this by giving you some examples. Um, so protein is um, is a good example of, of this when we're thinking about, um, so technically carbohydrates and proteins gram for gram um, share the same caloric value. So proteins and carbohydrates both have approximately triggering, this is the triggering content really, uh, four calories um, per gram. But the calories in protein um, are only 70% available to us for energy. So once they've been metabolized for energy, um, the and metabolism is that energy releasing um, process that occurs after digestion and absorption. The energy left is only 70%. So that's different to the carbohydrates and the fats where um, in fats, you've got around 90% energy or caloric availability so I think that in itself you think okay right so fat rich foods are going to be naturally more energy available but then if you take another example so something like um, nuts is a great example of this nuts are well known for being you know really energy dense they've got a high fat content um, but nuts as part of a healthy balanced diet and you know there have been um, observational and experimental studies on this show that when humans, you know, eat nuts, you know, they introduce in, in studies where people are eating um, sort of an extra portion of nuts a day, um, it makes absolutely no uh, effect. Um, sorry, it has no effect on their body weight. Um, so <laughs> the, by, by a sort of process of um, elimination, it makes, uh, it, this means that there's been no um, difference on that person's energy balance and the reasons for that so are just to clarify yeah. just in case anyone yeah. so um based on the study that you're coming from it's let's say someone's having x amount of calories a day yeah. with one portion of nuts like general serving they've added in a second serving so their overall calories have increased by whatever that nut portion is yet their body weight has stayed the same Yes, yep. exactly. Okay. Awesome. And um, in the studies, um, so there's different types of Because I'm sure of heaps of people heard that went, yeah, right. Like their calories went up. Of course their weight went up. But Yeah, so so the different, the observational studies, no, it's a different type of study. In experimental or an interventional study, yes. Um, although how, how closely we could monitor um, whether or not someone was reducing their calorie intake in another sense is not mm. entirely clear. Um, but the, I think when someone is prescribed, so the point is when they're prescribed just please can you eat an extra 100 200 grams of nuts a day or whatever it might be um their, their weight didn't change um and one of the reasons for this is um essentially the mechanisms involved in appetite control the dietary induced induced thermogenesis so that's how much heat is released from the foods um uh, how much release how much sorry how much heat um release is in the food and <laughs> um, how much heat the food releases when we metabolize it um and things you know other discrepancies around um how and how energy available and um, that's um how food energy food e available energy is in that food god god <laughs> it's, <gonna laughs> no, it's kind of a tongue twister but you are making perfect sense <laughs> good good um yeah so essentially in this respect when we're talking about human bodies not being laboratories we have to take into account the composition of the foods um you know and what's how food is packaged up in the way in what we're eating and when we're thinking of bringing this back to ha um or you know recovering from disordered eating or any form of um relative energy deficiency you know calories themselves don't always translate you know and you know, essentially, if we're eating a lot of these very thermogenic foods um, that are metabolized in a certain way, um, that they're very helpful for us, but we may actually not be reaching our calorie requirement. We may not still not be getting enough energy simply because of the foods that we're choosing. And, and we have to just be mindful of what we're eating, um, the way that those foods are put together, um, and also things like the way we prepare them and, you know, combine the foods as well. So that's, that's really a separate point. And I feel like I've got so many questions around what you just said. Um, and a lot of that is because there's so many I'm just going to call them rumors around food, like so many beliefs and rules and 
why you should do these things. And, you know, the, the obvious one is don't have a high fat diet because you'll gain heaps of weight. And, you know, so that's, that's a really obvious one. Like even people that aren't trying to lose weight, if they happen to see someone, cause I demolish nuts. Like I eat them like someone yep. with a bag of chips. I just I love them. <laughs> um, and yeah, yep. I've seen other people look at me like, oh, you know, should you really be doing that? Which honestly mm. in the past would have broken me in half, but now I'm just, I like them. <laughs> Leave me alone. <laughs> um, but I just wonder how, cause so I'm assuming, you know, a lot of people are listening to this going, yeah, but high fat foods have to make you fat because they're high fat foods. And I guess my second question around that would be, is another common belief is that if you have carbohydrates and fats together in a meal, you're going to store so much more fat than if you had your fats with just a protein or your fat by yourself, or, you know, there's this, and I I understand your digestion works differently depending on the macronutrients you've got coming in. I just wonder, given that you've actually got the science behind these things, um, what what are they trying to suggest when they say if you have your peanut butter on, oh, with dates, referencing back to that one, that you're going to store more fat? Like, is that actually a thing or? So yes and no. Um, I think um, peanut butter with dates is probably not the best example of this because um, that's a really healthy combination, by the way. Um, in terms of um, you've, you know, th- those are actually um, fiber-rich foods that are packaged up in a certain way that are, you know, that's not an, an, an highly, both of those foods are potentially processed. You know, they've both been through processing um, methods. So the the peanut butter, for example, has been blended. It may have had salt added. It may have had sugar added. It may have had palm oil added. These are all relatively normal processing um, methods. The dates have been dried. Uh, they may have been sprayed. You know, these are standard processing methods that occur um, in pretty much all foods that we eat these days are processed to a certain degree. You know, bananas are, are sprayed with a hormone so that they ripen adequately. Um, we can, it's very, very difficult to find a food that's not been processed. But mm. when we um, eat foods that are, so if we were going to combine fats and sugars, um, you know, natural or otherwise in an ultra processed way. So these are ultra processed foods are foods that have been um process to a certain degree whereby they they no no longer resemble something that we could um we find in nature or we could even replicate in the kitchen or in a restaurant you know you're often going to be you know finding the um, ingredients on the back possibly that you don't recognize and there's nothing wrong and again all food really important to say there is a place for ultra processed foods absolutely Mm -hmm. in the diet all foods processed foods matter but the, when we're eating a lot of these foods, um, these foods tend to be lower in, in protein and fiber, they're higher in salt, sugar and fat. And that combination there where we've taken the protein and the fiber away, the brain responds slightly differently. So when we eat carbohydrate, we tend to have some understanding intuitively of how much we're eating. And so we might reach a fullness at a certain threshold. Same goes for fat. We have a sort of slight an understanding to a certain degree it'll be slightly different as to how full we feel and the same goes with protein even though with protein we tend to feel fuller much faster but when you combine the um, carbohydrate and the fat together and again those that fiber and the protein has been um, eliminated or removed or reduced to a certain extent then the brain loses its ability to understand how much we're eating and it's easier in some ways it's just if we're eating an ultra processed food it's actually just easier to eat more of it um, than it would be that if we're eating other other types of food so that's sort I hope that explains sort of that's that's a really great response and thank you so much for for clearing that up because for one I definitely don't anyone want anyone thinking that I'm demonizing this combination like it's purely a question on that rumor or belief that people have and how you actually finished off the answer to that is how, I guess, the, the consumption of that combination is so much easier to consume. And that tends to be why those sorts of foods are encouraged during HA and ED recovery, because yes. you're, 
it's just a lot, as, as you said, it's a lot easier to consume. So it's not that we're trying to put you off track from your healthy diet that's all fruit, veggies and meat. It's actually in order to achieve your goals and get more energy in, those sorts of foods really help you to do so because you're not feeling super full straight away and you're not, you know, and even just as like palatable when it comes to enjoying food, that combination is actually like a really tasty, desirable thing, um, which can scare a lot of people too, because it's like, oh, but as soon as I taste it, I can't stop. And whether that's because you're worried about binging or whether it purely is just because you're really enjoying this food and previously you've been eating really dull, boring, low calorie, non-enjoyable foods. Um, so no, that was, that was a wonderful response. Um, I, I do, I, I do think it's important to say though there that I, I think that, um, you know, yes, you may want be able to eat more of that food because of the way that it's designed is you're designed to respond that way but you're also allowed to respond that way. You're, you're, allowed, you're allowed to just want to eat more foods and to eat these fun, playful foods, you know, and I, it's, there is a, um, I wouldn't be encouraging people to eat only ultra processed foods mm. in HA recovery either, because I don't believe that would be helpful or to the, to the sort of your, to the sort of, if we're looking at everything as a, as a whole, um, but, you know, it's about, allowing you know making space for some of these foods because in a certain sense alongside all of the other you know fiber protein rich healthy whatever you want to call labels you want to use these foods have a place as well these these less um conventionally mm. um acceptable foods also have a place yeah so i'd i'd love to i guess dive into because you hear both sides of the fence where um, there's lots of women who recover their cycle while maintaining a fair few of their food rules. They're just consuming more. And then you've got others who turn to a lot more processed foods and they also get their period back. And then people get confused. Well, should I be eating the highly processed? Should I be sticking to my super clean? And I'm, I'm just using those words because they're common phrases like food is food. Enjoy your food. Um, <laughs> you know it's um but I do think that a big part of women that are recovering from HA and ED who are choosing the more processed foods it's important to sort of consider that for a lot of people like there's 100% the enjoyment factor of you should be able to enjoy these foods and if you want to have them you should but there's also that exposure therapy where it's, I just need to eat it regularly for a little while, so I'm not afraid to eat it anymore. And that's absolutely okay too. Do you find sometimes with your clients, they get a bit overwhelmed with like, I, I need to eat processed foods, but I don't want to eat too much because they're, they're just not that great for you, but I need to, but I don't want to. And it's that just topsy-turvy back and forth, logical, logical, emotional yeah. bubble. Yes, yeah, so, <laughs> so, de so definitely. And I would say what I what I would say is um, uh, I love what you just said there about exposure therapy, because I feel like that's exactly the process of of recovery is it's not overwhelm. It's um, being gentle, appreciating it takes time, but that consistent, um, you know, challenging yourself each week or each day with um, a food or a meal or a habit or eating at a different time or something that makes you feel uncomfortable is really important. And a lot of the time when I'm working with clients, we're not just looking at um, just getting the period back in isolation because we're looking at, okay, what else is going on for this person in terms of their health? And often they're presenting with other symptoms that I'm also trying to address. So we're looking at, you know, and, I'm also, re it's really important to me that I'm not taking someone straight, you know, out of the way that they want to eat, you know, to obviously I'm going to challenge, but I feel like we, this is a way, you're, the way that you eat right now is a product of years of habits and, um, you know, there's a huge amount of attachment there. So, and I also want people to be eating some of those. And again, just using the labels, because we're used to using the labels, some of these more healthy foods, that's also really important. 
But if we're eating too much of all of those sort of health fibrous foods, the other symptoms like bloating can be really, really common and feel feeling uncomfortable. Um, but if we're going to, to just eat the ultra processed foods, obviously that's going to create potentially its own issues and problems. So it's absolutely about understanding the way that person eats making small minor adjust adjustments, making some tweaks to help them choose some more energy or calorie available types of foods in certain, you know, in their breakfast, for example, or lunch, and then maybe challenging that lovely exposure therapy idea that you use, bring it, weaving that in at times. Um, and just, it's a gen, it has to be gentle because um, mm. there's, there's no sort of strict plan with it. And we're all individuals, you know? Um, what works for one person really doesn't work for someone else and everyone starts at a different place everyone mm -hmm. is starting from somewhere different um, so my biggest challenge at the beginning is really trying to understand um, okay how is this person eating and then how, how are they operating what are the other sort of lifestyle how are they you know how are they moving what are the sort of stress factors and going you know what's the, what does their day look like essentially and then um, going in with some small minor adjustments here and there and just trying to see what we can do to that isn't going to scare someone because <laughs> mm. we can actually scare people away um, and, and that means that they don't get the help that they need so, um, but I, yeah, I don't want people to lose enjoyment of, or either from the way that they're eating. So it was a very long-winded response. No, it was, it was absolutely perfect though. Um, <laughs> I guess thinking back to the human bodies and not laboratories, you said the energy availability for protein was 70%, uh, fats mm. 90%. What's carbohydrates? So fats are around 98% and, and carbohydrates around 92%. So quite similar, quite similar, um, either, but it's interesting because the calories in the proteins and the fat and, and the carbohydrates are, they have the similar value. They have a similar mm. value in those, but they're less. Um, and again, there are a few other factors here in terms of, um, you know, the way we prepare the food is also going to make a difference. Um, and the way we combine foods is going to make a difference as well. So, talked about that a, that a little bit already um in terms of preparation methods you know cooking and blending and juicing makes a difference so yeah if you're not i'm not happy if you're still somebody who's just not happy with eating you know um some form of ultra processing foods then actually blending your foods or juicing them or um, cooking them down that could be a really helpful way to make uh, the energy in the food more available to us because essentially most cooking processes are an extension of the digestion process so we're actually starting to digest the food essentially outside the body um, so we're reducing the work that the body has to do to um, have access to that energy in the food um, and then just being mindful of how we're combining foods as well because that also can make a difference in terms of how quickly foods are broken down and released as energy um, and um, I think there are a few other sort of nuances there um, as well that I talk about a little bit in the um, in the article which might be helpful. <laughs> yeah because I think the, the preparation and consumption is something that can definitely be overlooked and even you know because the whole juicing thing was quite a craze for some time and I remember some people you know keep the pulp others would take out the pulp and just in that decision alone changes the nutrient quality so much because um, from my understanding anyway like the pulp holds majority of the fiber and mm -hmm. you know the fiber is what helps you digest the sugars really well um, is that is that correct yeah so um juicing yeah when we extract the fiber from the food um it uh, increases the glycemic uh load of the of the juice so the um that's essentially referring to the effect of that food on your blood glucose level and the fiber um that we remove say for example if you're going for a run in the morning or you know you might and you're, you're trying to fuel before that run you might want to have some simple sugars including something like a glass of juice right that might not be appropriate at other times in the day or if it is you might want to be adding in the protein and the fat somewhere else or have or going for the smoothie not the juice um but there is definitely a place for things like juicing especially if you're very very active and you need a quick 
supply of, of energy um, to, to sort of reassure the body that there's glucose available. And if you're then, you know, are being active and, you know, going out and doing stuff immediately after having some juice, then the movement of the muscles helps to pull that glucose into the cells. So it's actually not, um, it's not damaging to us in a way that we might have thought, oh, juicing is really bad and juicing is really unhealthy and we should add all the pulp in there, etc. Um, having said that, personally, yeah, I would say a smoothie tends to be better than a juice. For most people, we don't want to be taking or eliminating all of the fiber from the diet because obviously we'd all be very ill. Um, <laughs> we need fiber to feed the bacteria in our gut. Um, and, you know, and that's in itself is very important for our mental health and, and all sorts of other things too. Um, so they both have a place. <laughs> no, I was just going to say one thing and it, it's just refreshing me from the last time that we spoke is I love your language around food because it very much comes from a place of like, it should be enjoyed. But even just what you said then, it was more like food's such a wonderful tool. Like you mentioned how, depending on what your movement's going to be or depending, I guess, how long your day is going to be or any kind of stresses that are coming at you or level of activity. Um, you can always, like it, it, the way you described it was like food, is almost the superpower like we can use it to maximize all of these things rather than I guess sometimes during this journey of HANED we get lost into a part where sometimes it can feel like food becomes the demon it's like oh we have to consume it because you know I've, I'm still going to consume as little as I can or as healthy as I can or whatever that rule might be but it I guess sometimes it can take the tool aspect out of it because it's I guess it's so controlling that there's no room to be joyous mm. about it I don't even know if I'm making sense with what I'm trying to say um but just the way yeah. you explained that was very much like no no food in any I guess shape or form is going to be dangerous to you it's all about one enjoyment and two like if you want to get extra out of it yes, there's definitely timeframes you can consume it to get more like energy into the cells, but as a whole, it's always going to be beneficial to you. Yeah. Yeah. I really, um, I, I really love the way you've described that as well. And you actually sort of alluded to something there around, you know, when we're recovering and, you know, there's this temptation, isn't there to think of, okay, so, um, there are going to be a set there's a right type there's a right way to do this there's a right way to recover mm. there's a right number of calories there's a right set of foods that I need to recover and that in and, in and itself that's a sort of the mindset and the behaviors there that have led us to this place in the first place are sort of coming into this sort of whole recovery process and to a certain extent we want to let go of those and um, just allow ourselves to to, to let go from this need to um, control possibly as a word, but also um, micromanage or whatever it might be. But there's, there is that element that actually, no, we do just need to, um, to let go. And that in itself is the challenge, you know, that's the, that, that's what becomes the challenge, not reaching that quota or, or that calorie quota a day. Um, yeah. And I think in order to find that sort of intuitive eating um, approach because I, I think diet culture's sort of taken the joy out of intuitive eating because now it's a new form of, yeah. of diet protocol if you searched on Google. That's right. Yeah. Like it because you've got a, yeah. a calorie restricted meal plan for your intuitive eating and it's it defeats the point. <laughs> yes. um, but did you find whether it be from your own experiences or from working with clients, um, you know, you've got that those first stages of recovery where you're, you're, you're deliberately and consciously including new foods because you're trying to change your gut microbiome, you're trying to get over some fears, you're trying to rediscover what food you like, what food you don't like, because that's okay too. You can add in some things and go, oh, like I just don't like it. Um, but I just lost my train of thought. No. <laughs> oh I guess sorry intuitive eating there we go I've got it back I'm so sorry guys I'm so so sorry um did you find that some of that I guess exploration in the 
early weeks, months, however long, but we're very conscious and specific. That is what led you into intuitive eating because once you sort of got over the hurdle of, all right, I'm going to try new food today. I'm going to add in some fats today or I'm going to add in a bit more protein or whatever those little baby steps you took to start recovering from HA or ED. And then suddenly you started learning this feels really good when I eat it. This tastes really nice when I eat it. And it's almost like after a little while, the training wheels sort of go off and you can actually sit there with yourself and go, hmm, you know, like, what do I need today? What do I feel yeah. like today? What am I going to enjoy today? But it's almost like you needed to be put in conscious effort to explore yeah. before you could get in tune. Um, for me, I, I, I don't um, pause. I, I can't really say that I felt when I, because my recovery was such a sort of winding process. It was, it was, I was very much learning and I've always had a, um, I've always come from a place of really appreciating and loving food. So for me, it was very, it seemed very natural to um, be curious about things and just sort of start to change things very gradually and very slowly. Um, no, no, I don't think I had like a, a rule book or like a sort of, uh, a, a, you know, a, a list of things that I have targets, you know, that I wanted to do this week personally. Um, I didn't have a set, you know, I, I really want to try and have a pizza tonight. You know, I didn't have that kind of uh, approach it was very much feeling my way into how oh why don't I just do, it's a little bit more spontaneous and why don't I just sort of switch mm. things up um so it was yeah it felt a lot more um I guess the it, this is going to sound really weird to say but I think my intuitive eating process was very intuitive actually <laughs> Um, <laughs> no, but it's important sense. to share because everyone's journey is different though so yeah. for you as you said it was more of a I'm going to be spontaneous with my meals and, and it's very important for me to say actually that as as a nutrition as a nutritionist and as a nutrition professional I I'm, I was in a different position I, I was coming from a place of knowledge and privilege um, because I knew um what I knew that foods were a lot of foods were helpful and I knew which ones were helpful and so my ability to switch off parts of my brain and and then turn on other parts of my brain was just there already so I think for some people who who possibly don't know where to start um it might have to be a little bit more structured and a little bit more you know working with someone or even a friend or a coach or a family member to challenge you you know, um, then uh, it's, it's slightly different. So yes, I did everything myself, but also I do, you know, if you re do remember that my position is slightly different in that, in that respect, because I didn't know more about things. Um, yeah. No, it's because it's important, as you said, like those first steps are so different for everybody. And I, I hear back from a few people who listen to the podcast where certain things will come up with different guests and they go, oh, finally, someone said something that like, that's how I think. Because <laughs> you've got a lot of things that are similar, but then you've got those really unique points where it's like, I just didn't have that struggle. I had this one. And yeah. so I love it when new things come to light. And as you said, like you did have the education and then a lot of the nutritionists I've spoken to on, part, on the podcast and off the podcast you know, they've both come from a place where sometimes their education is what caused their disorder in the first place because they were just so passionate to become the healthiest person they could be that the education consumed them, that it's like mm -hmm. I can't have anything processed because it's ca uh, carcinogenic. Is that the yeah, word? Cancerous? Um, Cas yeah, yes, is that the right word? Yeah. Yeah. And like, why would I ever have anything like that when I can have fruit and veggies and, you know, and it, it's such a pure decision, like they're learning all these new things and they're so passionate and so excited. And then it just, it becomes all consuming and too much. But when they're in the position to change gears and go, oh, wow, I need to do some healing. 
they can also use that knowledge as their superpower to go, oh, I'm ready to heal. Here's how I'm going to do it. And I correct me if I'm wrong, please. But it, it feels like that's what sort of happened in your case. You decided to switch gears and you had this yeah. abundance of knowledge where you were going, okay, I can, I can work with this. Yeah, I, that's definitely right. And I think, I think coming, you know, I would say there's a very, very high, I don't have a percentage or a study to back this up, but I would say um, so many nutrition professionals will be coming from a place of disordered eating. In fact, it's what leads them to it. Um, that as you describe that knowledge, either to fix, um, fix something in the first place or, you know, possibly it triggers something for people. Um, but um, yeah, so, so common, um, incredibly common. Um, and even where it's not necessarily exposed or spoken about or admitted to, or uh, people don't feel comfortable. I do, I do always feel that there's <laughs> people, there's something. Um, but that, you know, in itself really only aligns to the fact that around 75% of us, uh, especially women, 75% of women um, will have some form of disordered eating anyway. And that, this is where we come to, okay, what's disordered eating and what's an eating disorder? And what's normal eating? What's a normal relationship with food? Mm. And, you know, it's, you know, is there one? Uh, I think as it's probably a question, anyone who engages in a diet and we're all victims of diet culture, um, it, that's a form of disordered eating, you know? Um, anyone who um, has any feeling or emotional attachment or, you know, what, what do we define as normal eating? It's difficult. Um, uh, going off on another tangent there. But I just want to... No, no, but it is, because it is so difficult yeah. to, to define which also makes it difficult for people rec to recognize when they are having troubles with it because yeah. just because it's common doesn't mean it's normal mm -hmm. um you know something I think about a lot is if you go to like a lunchroom or a dinner or something like that it, it can be quite common when especially when there's a really large menu from salads through to burgers through to you know like they've got just everything you can think of on one menu and people kind of do the gaze and the suss of what everyone else is eating and not not always some sometimes you go out and everyone just goes this is what I want and I don't I don't care what you order but it's depending on the group of people or sometimes is it work is it your study buddies is it you know what a sporting group they kind of look and go all right well I'm going to order based on what you order what are you getting and it's a silent look, but everyone knows what's going on. Everyone's reading the same, same scene. And like, don't get me wrong, it's, there's nothing wrong with it because it, it is common, but we should be in a position where we can just own our decisions and our food choices and not have to suss out who else is eating what on our table. That should just be, oh, look, if you feel like a salad, that's great. And if you feel like a burger, that's great too. Um, but on that disordered eating disorder, because then it can go to the extreme where like, I have to have the lowest calorie meal out of everyone I'm sitting with. And it's like, yeah, I, I think what you're describing there is very, is very, very common in, with all of us in society. I think what you'll probably notice though, is if you go out for a, actually it's not necessarily true, but it tends to be more common in women. Okay. So men tend, men tend to just order what they want. Women tend to sort of look at the other women and ask what, you know the other women have that that a little bit is an over gen uh, over simplistic and a bit of a generalization there because I do think that any form of self con that self-conscious um out of body experience is becoming more common in men as well definitely but it is this out of body um kind of mindset that we have sometimes around food and our permission to allow ourselves to eat eat what we want or need or feel like we you know it you know is good for us at that moment and so part of the whole process of recovery as well is becoming is coming back into the body you know and really trying to work from within the body and we can't do that if we are fixated on a number of calories that is you know 
um, extrapolated from data that may not work for the individual. Um, we can't do that when we're not allowing for changes that occur in our own bodies each day, whether or not that's related to um, different, you know, non-exercise induced activity thermogenesis or just moving around more or being exposed to cold or having an injury which requires more energy and all of those other sort of physiological processes and systems in the body that need to be repaired. Um, and, you know, we basically, you know, the, the idea that there is an ideal amount of food for us each day is flawed you know it's oversimplistic and we've got to come back into this in-body approach and this flexibility and develop or possibly relearn or maybe learn maybe you never felt that you had it you probably had it as a baby um but in your whole conscious living experience you've not had this um this innate ability to to be in your body and experience what your body needs and learning that or really rather unlearning all of those other self-imposed um, rules or standards is really hard. Um, and, and that's where it's, that, that's the journey really. <laughs> that's, that's the journey, um, that kind of relearning. I guess you led us perfectly into the idea that the energy requirements aren't static which is what you just mentioned, because, you know, um, generally government health guidelines and things like that say, I think it's 2000 calories a day. And, you know, just say something that broad is mind blowing mm -hmm. when people's daily stresses, health conditions, um, sporting activities, neat requirement, like it's, there's just so many yeah. things involved with what your individual body needs on a day-to-day -day basis, including, what stage you're at of your menstrual cycle, even yes. your requirements change. I honestly only learned that, I want to say eight months ago. And I was <laughs> yeah. mind blown. I'm like, I feel like the, of all the learning I've done, and don't yeah. know, I haven't gone to uni, but I, I've done a fair bit of reading. And I'm like, how did I not, how am I still yeah. learning new things about energy requirements? I don't um, think you would have learned that at uni anyway. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> that makes me feel better. No, because don't I worry. speak to some no really intelligent yeah. women like yourself. And I'm like, I stumble across things. I'm like, oh, wow. But then I speak to someone like you. I'm like, they probably knew that 10 mm. years ago. <laughs> I did. Um, I was actually did a talk on this last night about this. You know what happens in our cycle and what what are, what are all the kind of physiological changes that occur and the difference. What are all the effects of the hormones? And yes, in the second half of your cycle, we need more. We need more food. We need more energy. And none of us have ever been taught this. So, I think um, you know really understanding and respecting that that day-to-day -day change and shift and that everything we have to develop that flexibility is important I do just want to say though I mean that the recommendations government guidelines for women 2,000 calories a day for men two two and a half thousand calories a day you know to a certain extent we have to be um understanding and you know there is an important place for calories in public health and in the in the nutrition world from a kind of policy making point of view because policymakers have to take an oversimplified view um, around food so that messaging is clear um, but yes it, it doesn't work in in the individual and you know those numbers really i really just don't encourage people ever to pay any attention to those numbers at all um, i just think it's it's um it's it's unhelpful uh, to do that um, Another um, way that, you know, we're all different and we may, for example, um, require different energy and en different energy intake um, is expressed in our gut microbiome as well. Um, the, the gut bacteria, the gut bacterial genes in our, in our tummies. Um, and this is really relatively recent. I mean, it's only in recent years that evidence has shown this, but those species in the gut do have an impact, um, we believe, on our ability to extract uh, energy from digested food. So, you know, some of us are um, more efficient at extracting energy from food um, via the little amazing workings of those micro, 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 microbial species. <laughs> Um, we're both and, having uh, a day like that today yeah I know <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you've more of an excuse though um, 
and, and other, uh, others of us are less efficient. And we do know that the, you know, what's happening to mum uh, and baby in utero, that can influence, you know, how the baby, you know, the baby's ability, the baby's microbiome. And um, we, know, we know that the microbiome is different in people of larger, with larger bodies to it is with people who are suffering from uh, anorexia nervosa, for example, the microbiome undergoes huge changes that, you know, that are long lasting in terms of energy extraction. So um, it's all a little bit unclear at the moment as to, you know, and, and whether how, how we can manipulate that, if we can manipulate that, if we should be manipulating that. Um, and diet culture will probably want to produce that. Well, because that was uh, going to be my next question. It's um, if, like, can you manipulate that microbiome with nutrition? With And I'm talking opposite ends of the fence because I know... Um, like through my personal experience, especially when I was bulimic, my, my gut health was horrific. And obviously like I was doing horrible, horrible things to my poor gut. Um, but I did found, find that over time when I was no longer bulimic and I slowly started introducing foods that my digestion improved and I could tolerate a lot more foods. And um, overall, I just, my symptoms just reduced nearly next to nothing. Like they just totally went away um so like I through my experience I learned that whatever microbiome balancing needed to occur or growth that happened um I feel like it happened over time but is there is there some level of like capacity to change your microbiome like you know does is there the potential that every, like just like a fingerprint, I guess I'm trying to get at, like, because we are so unique and individual, could it be that we've just got our own sort of imprint of microbiome and, you know, you can play around a little bit, but for the most part, your makeup is your makeup. Like I've actually got no idea. I'm just really curious. <laughs> well, I don't have the exact answer 100% for you because I, I don't believe that we know it 100%. Um, but yeah, one hundred. But is you know, can we influence it at all? One hundred percent. Yes, yeah. we do know that. You know, changing the diet. Um, I'm just my computer wants to shut down, so I'm just telling it don't shut down now. Please <laughs> <laughs> don't. Um, yeah. So um, let me just move that. Okay. Um, so we know that we can one hundred percent influence the microbiome through our diet. Um, and other lifestyle factors as well, even things like exercise and stress can influence our gut microbiome. But um, our diets 100% can influence and, um, and more our diets, I should say, and the, the different types of fibres that we consume in our diet um, than supplements and probiotics themselves, you know, as in probiotic supplements. But using foods, natural probiotic rich foods, prebiotic foods, um, diversity in the diet is really important um and 100 we can influence that microbiome um, we know that very very clearly um, there's been lots of different studies in different types of um areas uh, looking at how that microbiome will change and we can also lose it very quickly so for example in you know, a starved microbiome in someone who's suffering from a severe form of eating disorder or um, someone going on a crash diet or there have been some fascinating studies on um, people um, doing an ultra processed diet. I think um, Dr. Chris Van Tulliken did an amazing um, TV show where he, you know, went on a six week, I think it was six weeks, that might be incorrect, but um, you know, ultra processed food diet and noticed and then, you know, saw what happened that there were all sorts of changes that happened to his brain chemistry, but also his microbiome. So there are all sorts of ways in which we uh, we can be we can be sure that we can influence the microbiome to what extent we can influence the microbiome in terms of energy um, extraction and energy balance. Um, I'm not sure we're really there yet in terms of the research. But it's just one of those, it's just, I'm sure it's a matter of time <laughs> before we know more about that. Yeah, well, it seems like it's such a, like, it's picking up a lot of speed, that research. Because as you yeah. said, it still is relatively new. I don't think I ever even used the word microbiome until 
oh gosh, I'm going to say 10 years ago, but that could be an exaggeration as well. Um, but then once I sort of started, heard it, started looking into it, you know, things just progressed. Um, I want to wrap things up one before your laptop dies. And also because <laughs> we said we would limit our chat and, you know, work within our means rather than go on a ramble because it's ramble so much fun to talk to you. I could so easily ramble for days. Oh, yeah. um, I guess in summary, yeah. do you believe that women should count calories in HA recovery? Do you think it's really personal decision? Um, because given what we've discussed today, it's like there's so many influences on calories just on the whole mindset side of things and your disorders let alone the idea that you need to consume x amount to recover your period let alone the idea that um, the energy availability actually in the foods versus the calories like we've covered so many diverse parts that go oh okay I'm I'm rethinking this like what what should I do what what are your recommendations guidance around the idea of it so I, I generally will always want to speak to the person, know more about the person, understand how they've got there. You know, if they've obviously if calorie counting has been a big part of their journey, that's a factor. Um, I don't think there is a right or wrong for any for, you know, for everyone. I don't think it's the, the answer is the same. I think everyone has to to a certain extent understand the implications of calorie counting and and what calories don't take into account um, and hopefully we've covered some of that today and then make you know their own informed choice about it um, generally speaking generally and again it, it does depend on everyone everyone is different I'm not a huge fan of it I do I do really encourage people to stop all tracking all things all, all data all numbers steps uh, calories just sort of being coming a little bit more flexible and being you know that in body experience and really trying to sort of um get back to um seeing what happens when we eat food just the way we want to eat food and, and then seeing what happens you know and sort of saying oh let's just a little reflect on that so definitely not I'm not the biggest fan I think that's probably quite clear yeah. but, um, <laughs> but um I think it is important to mention that you know counting calories may be necessary in you know when recovering from an eating disorder under the supervision of a nutritionist or a sorry registered dietitian um in, con in conjunction with a medical team um and psychological support so that obviously is a it's a different scenario um and it, and again yeah it does it does depend really um uh, it's not really my intention to provide the answer but um again I think the most important thing here is re relearning and rediscovering, you know, how to eat and nourish ourselves. Mm. Um, and, and that's, that's really where we need to focus. And that's the sustainability part of this as well, because, you know, counting calories is never going to be sustainable. It's just not, you know, if you, if you want to go camping one day and you've got a sachet of food and there's nothing, how do you, you can't, it's just not possible to, mm. to actually, make or enjoyable and so what's the end game I'm always encouraging people to think about you know what's the end game here is do you want to wake up one day and just be able to wake up and eat a, eat a lovely bowl of you know whatever it is I don't know what I insert favorite food and <laughs> And, and get up and go and then be able to meet up meet up with someone and just just enjoy something and you know if that we've got to think about and really let's take food off the table here for a second no pun intended but enjoy our life you know kind of enjoy our life and just be like okay food is a part of that life it just fits in as something that we actually need to do and just happens to be very enjoyable as well it's supposed to be enjoyable then you know Though that's the end goal right and how calorie counting fits into that is just doesn't I, I mean it's it, um it for me it just doesn't really fit into that life mm. that we want to lead we and and the life that we all have um we all have a right to yeah you know? well I guess you know the the idea of inputting data all the time whenever you want to eat it actually takes away from the joy and yeah. I guess that links into the the curiosity and the spontaneity and the, the pleasure the pleasure around food because it's like well how much pleasure can you experience if it's got to fit in a box or in a number or scan a barcode or 
like yeah. incidentally you're you're blocking that experience um yeah exactly. but no thank you so much now i'm gonna link the um the blog post in the show notes so everyone can access and have a read of that blog post because honestly it's a really fabulous blog um i really enjoyed reading it and i've absolutely enjoyed this conversation today and i've learned quite a few things as well so thank you so so much for joining us again and talking to us about many many things some of those are gosh part of the most confusing part of HA recovery is just what should I do? Um, but hopefully the insight and the education has given our listeners some more insight to make some empowered decisions about the next steps to their journey throughout HA and ED. So thank you so, so much, Holly. I love chatting thank with you. you. And, thank you, Jane. Um, Lovely to have been here again. And yeah, thank you. Thank you. For I already me. can't wait till next time. <laughs> <laughs> well, what are we going to talk about next time? <laughs> I think, um, yeah, we should, well, we'll have a few chats. I think there's probably thousands of things we will, we uh, we about. will have all the chats. But until mm. then, <laughs> I'll see you next time. Thank you, Jade. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening in on today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we loved recording it. Um, please share it with someone who you think might also like it and subscribe to the podcast to stay up to date with further episodes. Thanks again for being here.